Hello and welcome to the Big Esports Podcast episode 18. In this episode, we've got CEO and co-founder of Playside Studios, Jerry Sackas, in the studio. We talk a lot about running and scaling a startup, talk about different sources of revenue. We talk about looking after your staff and picking the right ones, and then delve into the esports market and their partnership with us here at Big Esports. So it's a fantastic podcast to listen to if you're wanting to start your own startup. If you're currently functioning as a startup with, say, three to five staff and wondering when or where to scale next, or simply if you're just interested in the topic. In other news as well, we are launching our educational online content series at Big Esports at bigesportsgg forward slash education. So if you're interested in skilling up, if you are wanting to create your own startup, get a job within the esports industry or further your skills, we are soon launching our foundation course. So you can check there for all of the course curriculum. You can sign up to our mailing list to get a bit of a questionnaire to learn a bit more and to tell us about what you would like to learn. One of the best things you can do for esports in Australia or abroad is support those companies that support you. What we do here in Australia at Big Esports is we've partnered with PLE Computers. They're a PC retailer that sell all of the best gaming gear. They also make a whole bunch of custom PCs, whether it's a full water-cooled massive rig to play Crisis at full graphics, or whether it's something nice and simple to take to LAN parties, play CSGO, Rocket League, Fortnite, or otherwise. They've got these different solutions for you. What we're doing with PLE is instead of just a general advertising partnership, we're trying to educate audiences and we're trying to grow the local scene. So PLE are working with us on our mentor courses where we're providing discount on both shipping and parts to the people that join in. We've partnered with them on our high school boot camp where we're educating high school students on mental health, physical health and wellness, along with technology integration, understanding how they can take apart and build their own computers and save money on pre-builds. We're also working with them on this podcast, which we're hoping is educating all of you, not only on just talking to cool people and understanding how they think and feel but what their struggles are, how their businesses work and how the back end works. So if you're looking to support a company that supports the scene, make sure you check out PLE at ple.com.au and grab yourself a bargain. Welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode 18 and with me today in the studio, I've got the founder of the actual studio that we're sitting in, Jerry Sarkis, Playside CEO. Mate, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, mate. No problem at all. So before we dive into a couple of questions, do you want to give us a bit of a background about who you are, where you came from, and a little bit of information about your journey from beginning in the games industry to where you are today? Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Jerry Sykes. As you said, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Playside Studios. Um, basically, I started in the games industry about 10 years ago now. Um, I got into it straight after uni, did a very basic uni degree. Uh, got a job at EA um, and I was working at EA as a tester to begin with. I moved my way up to the lead game designer within about, I'd say, four years. Uh, EA Studio shut down in Melbourne, had a chance to either go to America or, or sort of do my own thing, chose to do my own thing. I uh, got together with two mates and uh, started Playside and the rest is kind of history. So I think we've got about 50 staff now, uh, multiple projects every year, probably around 20 games at launch and... Um, doing a whole bunch of new stuff as well. Yeah, so talking about the games industry, uh, is there any special inspirations that you have? Is there any singular game titles, any franchises that you're a particular fan of that guide some of what you've done in the past or present? Um, look, it's it, I guess it depends what um, platform and, and stuff like that as well. I was a big fan of World of Warcraft back in the day. Um, just the overall scope of the game was kind of mind-blowing back then. Yeah, and still I kind agree. of is now. Um I think these days it's more definitely pick up and play very quick games. You know, I'm a big fan of Fortnite, um, but anything like that, which is more of a, you know, people can get online, play it for 20, 30 minutes or play for the whole night. I think that's where the industry is sort of going. I think we're moving to a more fast paced Overwatch, um, you know, even Dota and LOL, all that sort of stuff. I think that's where the industry is going and uh, it, it suits everyone. That's why it works. Yeah, and you, and you see that in the esports industry too, right? Obviously, you mentioned Fortnite. There's a $500,000 Australian Open tournament. Epic have put 10 mil. But, you know, if you look at the traditional and purest esports market, they generally get pretty annoyed at those kind of games, right? Yep. You see the people hating on Candy Crush, not a real game. They say Fortnite's not a real game, et cetera. But, yep. you know, as you were saying, a lot of the market's going that way. And, and you know, as, as far as I'm aware and should educate the audience for sure, that's where Playside sits mainly, right, in that kind of casual yep. That game type. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at a lot of people hate on Candy Crush and, and King and things like that, but if you look at 
Activision's overall revenue. I think Candy Crush is one of the biggest games that they've done. Mm. You know, every year just pulls in billions of dollars. So I think there is a massive market for that stuff. Um, I know Candy Crush specifically has a large female audience as well. So it's just changing and bending what we think the sort of gaming market was five, six years ago. It's all completely changed now. And I think Fortnite showed that with how casual it actually is. Yep. Um, you know, previously people would have thought that that would never have worked for a game of that sort of mid to hardcore type of gameplay. Mm. Um, but it's working. And I think that's sort of where it's all going. And yeah, I mean, otherwise PUBG would probably still be doing the numbers it's doing, if not more than Fortnite. So mm. yeah. Yeah. And I think like identifying what you said about the market in the end, the market doesn't lie. Right. You can't tell people what they like. You can't tell people what should be popular. You know, as amazing as Counter-Strike is to play as a game, and it still is very popular, you know, it takes a lot of effort to make something like that. It takes a lot of effort to keep the community happy. So if they're happy just playing tap games on their phone, you know, just let them. 100%. The market will always decide. So Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So there's a bit of a focus with with PlaySide on mobile gaming. Obviously, you do have some VR stuff, but why the focus on mobile for you? Why not, say, PC, for example? I think because of that, I think it's just so easily accessible to everyone. Um, not to say that we wouldn't do PC. As you said, we've done some VR stuff. We did um, you know, Zombie Riot, which was one of the first Oculus Rift games uh, with the touch controls. So that was like super fun to work on, a new platform that no one had ever done. So we had no idea. It was almost like creating a first-person shooter all over again. It was just you know everyone mm. was wild, wild west. Um, so... That was a lot of fun. It's not to say that we wouldn't do console or PC. Console PC games tend to be a lot more expensive. They're a lot more of investment. Um, and so it's a lot more hit and miss. If you, if you don't make it, you could break a studio from it. Um, we're trying to build our way up slowly. And I think one day we probably will go that route as well. Um, but at the moment, you know, mobile's doing really well. It's bringing in a lot of revenue and, and we seem to be, you know, decent contributors to the market and making AAA quality games. And it helps us work with a lot of big studios. So... Yeah, I think mm. we'll stick on that for a while. And how does the lead time from conceptualization to publish compare if you're making like a tap iOS game like you've got compared to even just a basic shooter type game on a PC? Yeah, look, I think it's it, it can be super fast on mobile. We can make a, a very hyper casual game like something like um, like Icy Ropes that we've made. We did that in two months. Uh, and yeah, that's right. actually one of our most successful products. We've spent, I think, a year on some of them. Um, and a lot of our sort of work for hire projects, we spend a year to sometimes a year and a half uh, creating like really polished stuff. Mm. Um, but it's not always necessary. I think the, the bigger mid-core products, you need to do that. You need to launch them, soft launch them, test them, all that sort of stuff. Um, the more hyper casual games, you can just pump them out, see what the market thinks of it, and then you can go from there. Um, but yeah, it, it can range. But there's really no way to sort of make a really decent PC game in two months. So it is a much shorter mm. time span, a much smaller scope as well. So do you say because of that, generally these hyper-casual mobile games suit a startup style business. Obviously, you were talking about you can pump it out, see what the market thinks and change. That's basically creating a, a lean startup, right? You're, you're just producing a yeah. um, you know quick subject matter, pushing it out there yep. and then pivoting as you need. Yeah, I think it does. I, I don't think it's easy. Um, I think there's a lot of factors to it that have taken us you know seven years to learn. And I think that you know I've seen a lot of Instagram ads lately like, oh, create a hyper-casual mobile game. This is how to do it. Read this book. Yeah. Okay. And it's it's all bullshit. Like it yeah. doesn't it doesn't work like that. Um, it's it's gotten to the point where it's almost maths. It's the whole thing is analytics and Facebook ads and and if you don't know that stuff, then it doesn't really matter how good the game is, it will still die off at some point. Yeah. So I think there's a there's a lot involved. It's a lot harder now than it was because now the the whole top charts is full of games that are just paying Facebook ads to be there but they're doing it in the right way. So they're actually making money. You can lose a lot of money on Facebook ads. So yeah. uh, it, look, it's definitely, it's it's not easy. Um, and I don't know if I'd really, I don't know if I'd tell people to go and create a new mobile gaming business or a new mobile app business because it's almost one of those things where if you weren't in it in the last sort of five years or you weren't there at the start, it's getting to the point now where it's super hard. And mm. it's like the people that have already gotten in and made the revenue are going to survive. So it, it's hard. It's it's like any industry, really. It's not just like a you know get in there, make a few games, and make a million dollars. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Otherwise, as, we'd be doing this on a yacht. So <laughs> and as with any startups, right? Exactly. You get right. that. You get the same thing from the gaming thing, where you know if you're trying to be an entrepreneur coming today to sell Amazon affiliate links, you're a bit too late exactly to do right. something like that, or to make yeah. the first drop Facebook. shipping. Yeah, yeah drop shipping, <laughs> exactly. Facebook pages. Yeah, you know Alibaba reselling merchandise. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah compared to mobile. So. 100%. Going away a little bit from the gaming scene and PlaySide in particular, obviously at the Big Esports podcast, we talk a lot about startups. The, mm. You know, Esports as a whole globally is in a startup phase right now, yep. being a startup founder yourself. So I want to kind of 
walk through that journey with you from conception until you where you are now. So you mentioned uh, after Visceral Game shut down at EA Australia, you're working on some console titles. You had the choice to either go to US or to pivot to create your own startup. Yep. How does how does that uh, conceptualize in your brain? How does that form? What what were you going through to deciding employee versus creating your own business? Yeah. Um, it's a hard one because I think this is the thing that I sort of, I've, I've mentioned this at a few sort of talks I've given is that you see online a lot of the motivational speaker type entrepreneur guys are like, oh, when I was younger, I used to, you know, go and wash cars and make you know $50 a day. And I used to go and sell lemon things. And yeah, it's like, I did none of that. So yep. that wasn't me. I was super creative and super artistic, but I didn't, I wasn't the entrepreneur, I guess. Um, when I went into EA, about halfway through working at EA, I was like, yeah, I can see how these games are made and I could see how on mobile in a shorter form I could maybe do this. But mm-hmm. even at that point, I was like, I'm not going to do this. Um, and then the redundancy kind of created the opportunity. Um, and I, I say that to a lot of people, a lot of people sort of even friends or family that are like, oh, I've just been made redundant. I'm like, awesome. Like what's next? Because you get a big chunk of money in terms of even if it's one, two, three months out from where you are, you get that all at once. And you're like, cool, now I can sort of plan what I do next. We were lucky at EA, we got a lot. Um, And it was probably more than they should have given us. But I think the way that the studio sort of ended was like they had to keep us all happy. Yeah. Um, So I had enough to, you know, survive half a year or when, you know, that you're that young, you can survive a whole year like I did. Um, And so I just decided that now was really the only chance I had to do it. And so I just did it. Um, and I had no idea what we were going to do to begin with. We just wanted to, we knew we were going to make a game. We knew it was going to take about a year. If I was to make that same game again now, it'd probably take me a month. So it's like, you learn a lot, but mm. we we did what we thought was best and we tried it out. And at the end, the, the thing that was different, I guess, about our startup is that we didn't go into it to make, it wasn't one of those get rich uh, quick schemes. The whole idea was to create a company that would be a quality company that would create quality products. That was that was the start of the company and that was the goal of it. There was never like, we're going to make this type of game and it's going to make this much money. The idea was to create something that back then on iPhone 3GS, I think it was, or iPhone 4, mm. um, it hadn't really been done. I think like the best graphics that were around were like, you know, Temple Run and a couple other, like Infinity Blade was done by like Epic, but that was it. And so we did Catch the Ark and Catch the Ark looked like a Crash Bandicoot game from like PlayStation 3 on a iPhone. Um, so it caught a lot of people's eyes and, and it was from there, even though Catch the Ark itself didn't make that much money, um, you know, it sort of just paid back what we'd spent already. We then got the eyes of all the Hollywood studios, like whether it was Warner Brothers, or I think the first one was Nickelodeon, then it was Warner Brothers, then Disney and Paramount, and the list goes on from there. But that was because we created a quality product. We didn't go into it. We didn't drop ship the you know the mobile apps. We mm. we made a proper online store. If you you know compare it to that, so um, you know I think that is the one thing that I would give advice to all these sort of entrepreneurs. Is everyone I see now is going into it like thinking that like first or third month idea that like they're going to somehow know in the first the first you know one to five months whether they're going to be a successful business and if you do somehow know that by then congratulations but at the same time the most successful businesses don't know until the second or third year mm. um and you see the same on twitch right you see a lot of people like try twitch for two months and they're like oh it's not working i only got like 30 active users like that's actually really good yeah. you should keep going and, and see how many people can you know start viewing you so i don't think many people can make it past that stage and yeah. even though I wasn't like an entrepreneur to begin with, I had a lot of hunger once I started and I would keep going no matter what. And I think that's the difference with sort of me and anyone else that I was working with uh, back then is that everyone else was very happy just to move to the next EA, to move wherever and just keep working. That wasn't me. I wanted to then go and create. Um, and that's something we didn't have a chance really to do at a bigger organization. It's like you get your task for the day and you just kind of do it. So, yeah. 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 And one thing I'm I'm seeing a lot more and, and learning to understand is about you need to have something to grow it. So you need that first $10,000 in revenue to yep. then say, okay, next month I'm going to make 15. 100%. And then I'm going to reinvest and the next month we're going to make 20. And then by year three, when you're saying, then you know you're successful, then you're like, okay, now I need to plan my two, $3 million revenue. Because you know what I find as well with a lot of entrepreneurs, especially in the esports space, then I'm not going to start unless I get $5 million in funding that'll yep. pay us all $100,000 salaries. Yeah, it's rubbish. And then we'll get our first, you know, Harley Davidson to sponsor us or Turd or yep. something like that without thinking, how do I start on a minimum wage or self-funded yep. like yourself? And uh, look, I mean, I see so many startups that are all just funded and it doesn't really mean anything. It just means that you've somehow sold somebody on the idea that what you're doing is correct. And in the tech space, that's not easy to do, but it's easy to fool people. 
and I see so many things across my desk that are not proper tech startups, but have raised $5 million and, you know, at like 20%. And it's, it's mind boggling, but mm. we've never raised money. We've never had to, um, not to say that we wouldn't, but it's not something that I actively look for. It's not something that drives me. I'm not really the type of person that cares about the sort of the, what I'm worth or making the company worth a hundred million. I couldn't care less. Mm. Um, we just want to create a good company. We want to make decent money and we want to employ 50 people security wise. Everyone's not going home at night thinking, Oh, you know, I'm going to lose my job tomorrow, which can happen in a lot of those startups that are just constantly raising money and they're just looking for the next raise all the time. Because yeah. what everyone's doing now is they're getting $5 million, they're putting into Facebook ads to grow their users and they, they need another $5 million, they need another $5 million. And when that train stops, the company's gone. Mm. Um, and so you see it a lot. And I think it's just, it's going to burst soon. Um, but I think that it's just a really poor way of, uh, what will happen is the investors will be smarter. I think it's going to take a few big failures for them to go, oh, that's what's happening with the money. Um, because yeah. you just see it at every single like investment meeting with these new companies like yeah we grew this many users since we made a million dollars off investors like yeah we put that million dollars into ads so it happens and they're yeah. probably doing it at terrible cpi and terrible everything but they don't care they just want that graph to keep growing but that graph can't yep. keep growing forever you know so it's i don't know it's, it's very it's a very different market now and i'm just really happy that we started when we did where you know, really the pure quality of a game studio really mattered. And it still does to this day, but it's hard to get there now. That's the difference. Yeah. So talking about creating and maintaining a sustainable company, what kind of revenue sources do you suggest that these new companies go for? Are you looking for that once, that first off big hit that you can get in 20, 30 grand through the door? Or are you really trying to build those relationships with those companies that give you one, two, three grand ongoing month by month to be able to then build that up over time? It's, or is it a combination? Yeah, I think it's a combination. Like, I don't think there's a, the right answer. It depends on the type of business. Um, but for us, it's definitely even still to this day a combination. Mm. We'll take things even like to these days just for the relationship that might be a lot less than what we'd normally take from like a big client. Um, and we'll do it because we know what's down the road will be much bigger with that client. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, we, we take risks every day with some of the offers we take. We sometimes take risks with pushing back on the offers and, and you know, risk losing the offer. Um, but it's it's all a sort of balancing game. And I think that you need to do a bit of both because you're going to need that one big hit. Like in the beginning, we had, whether it was SpongeBob or one of the other ones, it was decent enough revenue that we went, okay, you know, we're going to do this and it's going to cost us a bit, but it'll make sure that we've got a studio for two years. So in that two years, we'll also do this, you know, so it lets you plan. Um, mm. And during those two years, then you start to build up those, you know, other partners that will be there for the long term. Um, you know, so with us, we, you know, we've got a lot of really good partners, but, um, you know, we've got Metro Trains, for instance, who are Aussie and, and we've been with them for like, I think, a few years now. And, and they're the type of partner that they'll always be there. We'll always do well by them. And, and we've got like a basic team here for them. Mm -hmm. But it's hard to do that unless that that sort of partner is always going to come back for more work. You can't keep that team there. So yep. that's what we try and tell people is, that, listen, this project's all good and well, but let's back it up with another one because otherwise that team that you really love that just built this game, they're going to go on to something else. So when you come back to us, it'll be a different team. And you might not want exactly like if you want exactly what happened in the last game it's not going to be the same thing so mm. it changes right and you sign i guess it's just teaching the client that um but with us it's all about relationships uh, you know tj our coo my, my business partner he's amazing at that sort of stuff i'm definitely the more creative guy and and i sort of just look after the projects and look after new stuff and think about where we're going but um tj's definitely more the, the partnership guy yeah so obviously you know, unpacking a bit of that, like you mentioned with SpongeBob, what you're doing is you're setting up these companies that allow you that runway to then be able to go off and get those other contracts to yep. provide you with a stability. I mean, in another sense, you could say, you know, I've got some friends that run modified car workshops, for example, mm -hmm. and the bottom line is fed through to servicing boring Toyotas that yep. gives them enough time and to be able to own their space and to employ the staff to then go wrap Lambos and run R35 soundtracks and all that kind of fun stuff on yeah, it too. Exactly. Like it depends. If you want to do things you love, you've got to like do some stuff that you don't love. You know, you've got to do some things that just bring in money. We've been really lucky that almost everything we've made, if not everything we've made, has been really, really fun to work on. Amazing brands. There have been a couple here and there that you'd be like, oh, look, it's like a, a kid's product that not everyone's going to love working on. Mm. But everyone here really gets behind stuff. Um, and we've almost become that more like family friendly kids studio and everyone really gets into it. So it, it works really well. Yeah. So like you mentioned, and in a similar vein, like you mentioned, you start off with yourself plus about three others, you scale to about 50 so far. Yep. So how do you decide when to scale? When do you bring on more staff? Um, it, it's, it's all about budgeting and making sure that you've got enough money. Like in the beginning, we tried to always make sure that we had like a six month to one year sort of runway, no matter what happened. 
um, and that was like after projects had finished and we still had staff on with no money going in we, we really go that far yeah um, and we to these these days we go like a year out plus right um, so like one to two year runway if we lost everything you know so that that's how we sort of look at everything so you look at that and you go okay cool if we've got six months and the project ends in three months, but even those three months after that, we've still got money there. Well, then you can take some of that and then start putting it into the three months that you're actually working on stuff to then build things that are ready to keep going. Mm. So you've got to start just sort of investing a bit earlier than you'd think you would in, in new staff members. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what it's the hardest part is in the, in the beginning, the hardest part is rent because every time you get new staff members, you get, need to get a bigger place. So we've gone, I think one, two, I think this is our third studio. Yeah, it's our third studio. So the first one was like, double the size of this room. Um, the second one was, I think, 150 square meters. And the third one was 750 square meters, as you've seen now. So mm. big jumps every time. And every time that's a huge jump in rent that now you're then paying like four people's salaries for a new space that you didn't even have that money to put into the other space that to get salaries, you know? So it's you take big risks yeah. every time, but every time we've done it, it seems to have worked. Um, and yeah, uh, it's there's no good answer to it other than you really need to scope out like your runway and just be like, okay, cool. This is about the time that we run out of money. So let's invest a bit more here and we can push that a bit one month here, one month there. And yeah. So. Yeah. So, you know, managing more staff, bringing them on board, you've got a lot of different personalities and then you've got office politics or just the office flow that comes into it. Yep. So how much time do you dedicate as the leader of the pack as a CEO to working internally in your business or working externally on bringing more things into the company? I think the one thing that I do really well, uh, not that I want to sit here and say what I do really well, but I I make sure that I hire people that can do all of these things really well. So back in the day, I used to do all of it. I used to try and bring in new work. I used to make sure that the trees were the right color green. I used to do everything in the games um, Mm. while I was working on relationships. So I was up at 3 a.m. taking phone calls with you know, the, the U S about something that we'd done the day before, then I'd get up in the morning and I'd start doing the build with the guys and I'd be the last person to leave all this sort of stuff. It gets to a point where five, six years in, you just can't maintain that and also run a multi-million dollar business. It doesn't work. So mm-hmm. one thing I've done really well is I've, I've promoted people to the, you know, promoted the right people to the right levels of management and I've hired really good management that is a fit for certain things. So as I said, TJ, he's a network guy. He'll go out and he'll go to a party or he'll go to the US and everyone will love him and everyone will talk to him and he'll bring back contracts, right? I am really good at talking with clients and, and sort of selling them on the dreams of their apps, their games, whatever it is. But my main strength is in creativity and thinking about what we should do next. So I try and focus more on the future of Playside and and make sure that TJ does that. Danny's our VP. He does the games now and the apps. Um, and then we've got a whole bunch of producers under him. So the, the management layer that we've built is really, really strong mm. and allows me to focus on the future of the company because previously, you know, say two years ago, I wasn't able to do that. I'd, I'd only be able to do one or two of the things properly. And it would be like sort of, you know, you're spending like half a day doing one thing, half a day doing another thing. It's not the right way to run a business. So I mm. think um, these days my mind's a bit clearer. It allows me to also get a lot of other things done that I wouldn't have ever had time to do, whether it's just personal stuff or family stuff um, because I've, I've set this sort of all up. So, yeah. Yeah. So how, how important is having uh, an internal financial lead as well on keeping track of all these things and making sure you know when to scale and, and yeah. how to run your company? Look, it depends who you are. If, like I'm not a very sort of numbers guy. So I, I know the financials of the company. I know how to increase them and I know how to bring in contracts that will bring us money um, yeah. and how to spend that money. I don't, I'm not the guy that's going to be sitting there doing taxes and GST and paying staff and doing all that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, and, and also not the guy that's going to forecast the business numbers forward. I want to work with that guy. So for me, it was uh, uh, one of the guys that I started the company with, um, Aaron. He's, he's our CFO and he does all the numbers and we sit together and go through everything every month and, and that's how we do it. But it depends who you are. If that's your strength, then that's what you should do and then leave the creative to somebody else. But don't try and do both. Like if I tried to do the financials and be the creative guy, it'd be super hard for me because that's not me. And you'll mm. find that it's not most people. Most people are either really creative or really financial. There's one or two. Yep. Um, but you know, I think being business driven is very different to being the financial guy as well. People seem to think, oh, because you're not doing the finance, you're not business savvy. It's complete opposite. Like it's business savvy is one thing and, and being financial and, and maths and all that sort of stuff. And that's, that's just not me and, and mm. never was and it never will be. 
Yeah, I think something that's becoming more apparent in startups globally is what I've read is that the founder doesn't always make the best CEO, right? Yep. And it's the same. If you're if you're just doing finance stuff in the office, you're probably not the one that's fit to set the company direction and to be the CEO. Maybe you had a fantastic idea at the start. You knew how to monetize it. And like you were saying, with good CPI and Google Ads, you grew the company to a certain level. But when you start getting a thousand employees on board, that's when you really need a career CEO to, to come on board and start taking after that 100%. I'd say even like a lot of these companies that are raising money, the people that are giving them the money should look at that straight away. They should be like, okay, cool. This guy set up a good idea. They've got decent, you know, runway with what they want to do with it, but they're not the right CEO. So like straight away, try and find a new management system in that deal. Just be like, we're going to give you 2 million, but we want you to sit here and we want someone else to be CEO and do that. Like it's, mm. it, I completely agree with you. And I think that I learned a lot in the first sort of year or two from my partners who like, you know, Mark is the other partner. He's very business savvy. He taught me a lot about being a CEO. Uh, if I hadn't learned that, then I would probably just be creative director of Playside at the moment. Um, and I would have appointed somebody else to be CEO. But I think what I learned from Mark allowed me to be this sort of two-headed beast that can do both things, which is very hard to find in the games industry. It's either sort mm. of someone super creative or someone that just wants to make money. Um, it's very hard to find someone who can do both in an authentic way. So that's something I learned off Mark. So, yeah. So turning the last questions for Playside before we turn to some more esports related stuff and, and a bit away from general startup things, Playside's been working a lot with regular apps other than just games recently. So, yep. you know, working with uh, Keep It Cleaner with, with Steph Claire Smith and Laura Henshaw, which is a fitness based app. Um, also recently announced working with Banter as well, which is a messenger style app. So as a company, I mean, A, I don't want to dwell too long on why exactly those two, but more so when when and how do you decide to pivot as a company away from your core business, which was the gaming towards these more general apps? Um, I think I'm very sort of industry focused in terms of where tech is going. Like mm -hmm. I'm not really as concerned about the games industry. I never have been. Um, I think the games industry is where my heart will always be and that's what I'm good at creating games. But if you can create a game, like games are so hard to make that creating an app is like the easiest thing you could do in the world. And if you've got the the UI knowledge and and even just user knowledge of what people do when they use an app, it's it's the easiest thing to create these things. So for me, it was about, I never wanted to create an app because there was sort of, this was my sort of whole stigma with the apps, right? I didn't want to create apps as a main business. As you've seen, a lot of the bigger sort of app companies have all shut down recently. And the reason is this, the way they were doing it is they were literally getting like mum and dads who had like fish and chip shops that were coming to them with an app idea and they would literally put their house on the line or put their business on the line to create the next big app, right? And these guys would just take it on as if, yeah, yeah, we're going to make you the next big thing. Give us 300 grand, mm. right? And to me, there is absolutely no way in hell that I could take that money and sleep well at night knowing that like their app was not going to be good because at the end of the day, you, you want to put 300 grand on an app, you need 2 million for marketing. And none of them are doing that, right? So they all pay 300 grand for the app. The app that most of these guys was producing were crap. So then they'd put it on the store, it wouldn't get featured. Uh, even if it did get featured, it would die straight away. And then they had no marketing money, right? And then their house would be sold, right? So it's like, I had no interest in it. And until I started to look into sort of the bigger apps and the fitness stuff, um, a lot of subscription-based apps, obviously social networks, things like that. And I started to think, all right, cool. Maybe we can do some of this stuff, but we keep it super niche and we work on things that we want to work on um, and with companies that are already you know, doing well that aren't going to lose all their money if they give us money. The same way we make games, right? If Warner Brothers spends $2 million on a game and the game doesn't do well, Warner Brothers are still sleeping well at night. And mm. so we, we want to make the best products for everyone. So when I spoke to the girls, it was a no-brainer because A, I already knew who they were. Uh, I'd, 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 my wife is friends with Laura, um, but... As a business, I saw exactly what they were doing and the way that they move is insane. So as soon as they came to me with the idea for the app, I was on it straight away. Um, and that was at a point where I didn't even know. I think we had a board meeting like two months before saying we're never going to do apps for the reason I just said. Mm. And I was like, we're doing this app because I believe in the girls. I know what their future is and I know that I want to be part of that because their growth is going to be immense and, and so will the app. So... That made sense. Then the banter boys came to us after we launched Keep It Cleaner, which did really well. Um, and it's still doing really well and growing. Um, banter boys came to me and they're like, look, this is what we've done. Um, and they, you know, they had created an app beforehand. It was okay, but they knew what it could be. And so they came to us. We have the gaming background, which banter is a lot more gamified than any other messenger apps, not mm. in its current form, but where it will be going. Um, and so I thought that makes perfect sense. It's something that I wanted to do. 
Um, and once again, I, I trust those boys and I know what they're doing. And it's like, yeah, I think that with them, they're the right partner for what we need. Because otherwise, if you don't have that sort of influencer backing or or someone that's got a lot, big market that they can give this up to, you're going to have to spend so much money on marketing and it still might fail, right? So mm. we, so far, we've gotten lucky with our apps that both of them are, are with really good partners. I'm not out there looking for work for hire for apps. Um, I've had a lot of people sort of reach out to me since we've done Keep It Cleaner and the banter stuff was announced. And it's like, I'm trying to help those people in the best way I can and saying, look, go and get funding, go and talk to these people, maybe learn coding yourself. Um, I don't want to be that guy that just says, yeah, cool, give me a hundred grand and I'll make you an app because mm. it just it's not going to work for everyone. It's not just, you know, a one size fits all type thing. Yeah. And I guess, you know, the message I'm getting from a lot of this is you want to be like you said, you want to work on things that interest you, but you don't just want to be a shop. You don't want to be an yep. app shop. You don't want to be a game shop. You want to, and I guess that goes for anything, right? If you're an esports team and you want to be the number one esports team in the world, you need to stop just shilling G Fuel, um, you know, and general subscription and, <laughs> yeah. you know, use my code for 5% off on Amazon yeah, exactly. and all that kind of stuff. You want to sell that air of, of you know, like you mentioned, Playside AAA developer, mm -hmm. you know, if you're only working on C grade tier games doesn't and you're releasing, sense. you know, mum and dad shop apps, it doesn't fit with the same. Yeah, you want to become the the brand that you want to be known as, and I think that 100% works in the esports world. But for us, it's that it's also where I think the industry is going. I think apps are a much bigger focus now than they once were. I think they've always been big, but now they're making big money, and that's a difference. Um, but I think, look, in the long run, I mean, I've, I think I've spoken to you about this, but I've told a lot of people where I believe everything's going, and I don't think it's mobile phones at all. I think it's all augmented reality, um, and I think that people are really failing to see what's about to happen because I think in the next three to five years, everything's changing. And if you sit there and you just go, all I'm going to make is mobile games. And if you sit there and go, all I'm going to make is mobile apps and don't realize what's about to come, it's going to be like Nokia when iPhone came out. Um, mm. So I want to make sure that we're always on the best platforms. Um, we're working with a lot of even Android developers, uh, Android hardware developers that are creating new phones that are doing different things. Um, but for me, you know, AR Dragon was our first AR app. It's the most downloaded AR app in, in history. Um, I, I can't remember the stats now, but it, it accounted for like 30% of all AR games put together. Um, so it did really well, but it wasn't a, it, we didn't make multiple millions of dollars off it because AR is still so small, but everyone mm. else is failing to see that this is where it's all going. Um, and I think that Apple know what they're doing. They're making AR kit. And I think they know that the future is AR. So when that happens, they've got all these games and apps that have already been made for AR kit. So it's a simple switch just to go, okay, now you can see it through the glasses. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it's not just Apple, it's everyone is looking that way, but it's going to take one piece of technology that is somewhat fashionable, cool, um, and, and makes sense. And it'll all be AR from then on. And I think the phone will act as like a controller for that stuff, but it will not be us on phones and I think so many people are like oh yeah but who's gonna wear glasses it's like the age-old question of like everyone that's the answer until we then get contact lenses one day but that's where it's going there's there's no ifs or buts it makes so much more sense as well that we but we just don't see it now but in like 10 years we're gonna like remember how we used to like take our phones out of our pocket when it would rumble and we'd look at a message and then swipe and then see the message yeah and now we just like look at the air and the message pops up yeah so it's gonna be so different man and who knows what it'll do to esports but I think it's going to like all evolve into like one big thing. It's going to be insane. Mm, yeah. And, and like you were saying, you know, and, and alluding to a lot, it's who, who owns the content wins the game, right? Exactly Ultimately, right. if you're making your own IP, like you said, AI Dragon, yep. the same goes in esports at the moment. The publishers are the ones that are making the bulk dollars 100%. right now. And if you look at the, obviously, you know, esports still being a startup phase, but if you look at Forbes, there's only one cash flow positive team in the world who's in the top tier. And while they are raising those big dollars, everyone's still struggling to find their fit to make that money. Yep. But while that's happening, League of Legends, billions of dollars they're yep. generating, you know, literal billions of dollars for Epic Games through Fortnite, making in profit, not just revenue. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're seeing that and, and they yeah. pony up $100 million for esports and people are saying, man, that's a lot of money, but how much is $100 million compared to the $3 billion in profit they've made? Not really that much yeah, overall, exactly right. yeah. you know, compared to the grand scheme of things. And they're still making profit off the top of that. It's not even just their revenue they're lying yeah. down. They could literally do whatever they wanted right now and make so much money. Like they could put... 10 times the staff that are on it, but they know that what they've got works and we'll just keep working on it every week and we'll put up updates and we're still going to, they've made 3 billion. It's like, who knows how much they're going to make. They'll make over 10 billion because this thing will keep going, but it's it's insane what's what's happening. But I think, um, yeah, I, I just think that the mobile side of things will change a lot. 
Uh, I think PC will will always be there in terms of PC and console being like a gaming thing. Mm. But I think augmented reality is going to take over the the handheld sort of mobile space of things big time. Yeah, and I'm definitely very interested to see where AR esports goes and VR esports and yeah. stuff like that too. Yeah. Obviously, there's been some things recently of some, you know, like a dodgeball type game yeah. come out, and they've, you know, they just ran a World Finals. I think it's called Hado H A D O out of Japan. Yep. You know, they just ran a World Finals with 25k AUD as first place and that kind of stuff. So it's cool. Yeah, it's starting to get starting to get some traction, and that really kind of then will start to combine right sports and esports. When That's it, the interesting when it becomes part. one thing. Yeah. Like who knows if you know, 10, 20 years from now there could be like a COD style game in real life, like set mm. in real arenas, but all digital. So you don't know, you don't know where it could go and it could even just be from your own home, but there's a big gap that needs to be sort of leapt, which is the whole, how do we move thing? And that's why VR just hasn't worked yet. Um, no one can figure out how to make movement work well. Um, and mm. I think once that is like, once they fix that, that's why AR doesn't have that gap because AR, you put the headset on, you walk around and you can see Google maps, you can do whatever you want, but yeah. VR really need to get over that leap and then it'll be game on after that. Once someone figures it out, it'll be like almost someone figuring out WASD on a first person shooter and then it's just game over that. Mm, yeah, and like Doom, right? When you like when you can start to look up and down, it's not yeah. just left and right and exactly. walking forward and backwards, you've had that three D axis where yep. you can actually start to look three sixty degrees around you. Yeah. Then it changes the whole world. Hundred percent. Yeah. So speaking of pivoting, pivoting our talk more towards the esports space, obviously um, you know, a lot of people who listen to this podcast have, have been here since day one and quite dedicated audience. And they know that we started off as business in games um, and working mainly just only on the course and, and on this podcast. And recently, as of last year, we announced the pivot into big esports with yourself and Playside Studios as a partner, uh, one silent partner, as well as Joe Hashem. Yep. So with you investing and becoming involved in esports, uh, obviously you have a knack for or an interest in spotting industry trends. So why why esports? It's It's exactly that. So it's the same reason we went into the subscription apps. It's the same reason we did AR, VR. It's I know where it's going and esports is just getting so much bigger. Um, you can see just in the last year alone, it's, it's it, you know, you see these graphs that are very like sloped like that, but realistically last year alone was almost a tenfold of how many people know what esports is now. And that's obviously mm. due to people like Ninja and things like that as well. But, you know, Ninja is not just like some influencer on Twitch. If he wasn't that good at the game, people wouldn't be watching him. So it's like esports bleeding into the sort of traditional influencers on Twitch and the guys that might have been like getting a lot of viewers, but now they have to be really good as well. And it's all mm. becoming one thing. It's almost like watching like Floyd Mayweather train and then you get to see him on the big thing. You know, that That's what it is. And I think, yeah. I think that's where it's going. I think we're going to get a lot of sort of athletes that are the ninjas and stuff like that where they're going to become like celebrities that people can follow throughout the, the day and week. And then they're going to have the big tournament every month or whatever. I just see it like that. I see it like the formula one or something. Um, mm. And I think that, you know, who knows as like we, the one thing we always talk about is like, how's it going to work? Like what are all these games? Is it, is it all going to be like just each game is a different sport? Um, there's so many questions that need to be answered, but that's why partnering with someone like you makes sense. I don't know the answers to all that stuff, but I know where I see it going. Mm. Um, and I think that the last year has kind of proven that. I think we were speaking about that stuff before it was really taking off as well. Mm. Um, and, and I think it's really the last few months has just been insane. Yeah, and there's two interesting things to, to pull out of that for anyone who's listening that wants to do some further research. Number one is I watched, first time in my life, I've watched a 10 or 15 minute video um, about the gaming industry and it was what happened to TSM myth and it talks about yep. how he's like he's obviously still a very popular streamer but it's waned a little bit mm -hmm. and his numbers have started going down because he used to be one of the best in the world and then as the game went on other people became better he focused on streaming more than becoming better yep. so then people like Tafui and such who from FaZe who spent a lot of time training yeah. they started getting the more views because they're actually 100%. providing the quality content yeah yeah. Tafui is like the perfect um, guy to look at really because he's People literally watch him because he is a god at what he does. And that will transform to any game. It's not just Fortnite. It's like the way he mm. aims everything. Uh, and I think that's where it's going. It's like you're going to follow these athletes that could maybe even do like the whole Conor McGregor. I'm going to do this, but I'm also going to do this really well as well. Mm. Uh, and in esports, you can do that a lot easier than you could in, in physical in real life, you know, yeah. having to learn a completely different sport. So I think um, it's just going to be so interesting. And I, I can't wait for the next few years. Mm. And you're definitely right about players becoming personalities and, yep. the, and the bleed over from Twitch streaming into professional play. Yep. You're starting to see that a little bit more in professional esports, but obviously, like you mentioned, the MMA fighters do it the best really out yep. of anyone. 
you know, generally the football slash soccer players do quite well and Formula One do as well. Yep. And there are definitely some ways that esports can learn from the sports industry with how to be an influencer while also being a sports celebrity. Because you don't you know, you don't see that very much in Australia. If you look at the AFL, which is which is so successful in a country that's quite small, yep. you know, how many millionaires and p- how many people are on million dollar contracts within the AFL? We've only got a very small country. So, yep. you know, it's hyper successful in its own market. But when you look at all of the top players, they've still got 10,000 Twitter followers, 20,000 Twitter followers and such. But, yeah. you know, when you look at some of these other sports like MMA, they really know how to use those brands to help yeah. them and they really know how to build those brand deals to make that money on the side. Because, you know, how often do you see the top AFL player posting about the new Toyota that's come out and they're sponsored to go to an, a yeah. launch and stuff? But, you know, you see that in, in MMA, boxing yeah, and Yeah, M- McGregor's doing like a new brand every day basically at this point. And it's... It's, you know, if you look at the growth of UFC based on McGregor himself, it's just immense because mm. there are way better fighters than McGregor, but his personality is the brand, you know? So it's like it, UFC almost became a brand, like McGregor and UFC were one thing. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's been the best thing for like Dana, but it's, it's the difference that I think we're going to end up seeing is that up until this point, a lot of the sort of traditional esports guys have been maybe somewhat quiet on social media and even quiet in general and just come in. They, they train, you know, all year round. They come into the tournaments, they nail it. So like, thank you very much. We did it. And then it's out. I think we're going to start getting some, hey, I did it this year. I did it last year. I did it the year before. Come and get me. And I think that's when it's going to be like, all right, cool. Now the competition's begun. Now we're starting to see like the teams that really own it. Mm. Um, and I think that's when we're going to get a bit more of the sort of boxing feel to it or the traditional sport feel of like rivalry, um, which, you know, there's some rivalries now in esports, but I mm. think that getting that one or two guys that are going to be like the, the ones pushing it, I think it's going to be, it's going to be very important to the growth. Yeah, and I'd say that's a big thing missing from Australian esports especially is yeah. setting the rivals and, and setting the stories. Because yeah. a lot of it is, you know, when I have a frank conversation with people in Australian esports, I say, look, if it's all digital, we all speak English, so why would I watch you play in mm. the top-level Australian tournament where I can watch Australis play FaZe, who are the yeah. two best in the world, one of the teams are sponsored by Audi, yeah. you know, and, and these guys are amazing at the craft and what they do and can beat us here locally. Yeah. So you need to sell that story. You need to provide me with the reason to watch you. And like you say with the McGregor thing, and this happens in so many sports over so many years, right? You don't necessarily have to be the best, yep. but if you can sell a story, you know, yeah. and, and push he's it. Irish, right? So it's like at the end of the day, he's Irish and he's and he's got all these American fans backing him. So I think that the same exact thing can be done here. Americans love Australians. They love our accents. Mm. Um, and there's no reason that we shouldn't be number one in, in Twitch and all that sort of stuff. So mm-hmm. I think it's just going to take a bit of a transition period. It's I think we need to win a lot more tournaments esports wise and then, you know, we can figure it all out. But I think 100% there's, there's, you know, it's definitely going to happen. Yeah. So getting away from, from MMA and, and the players mm. a little bit. So, you know, as an investor yourself in the space, it's fairly generalistic investor question, but what, what are some of the main criteria that you look to fill when looking at a company? Yeah, look, I mean, I think at this point when it's so early, it was the same with VR. When it's so early, you want a company that can do a bit of everything. Um, you don't want to just lock yourself now and be like, this is what we're going to do in esports and we're only going to put all our money into that. Um, and that's something that, you know, I guess yourself and I both believe in is it's like, let's put our feelers out in a whole bunch of different places. And when mm. we really just sort of like snag that fish on the line, then we'll go really hard in that way. Um, and, you know, we've got many ideas for many different companies within that and, you know, things that we'll be announcing really you know shortly. But I think um, it's just trying a whole bunch of stuff out and seeing what sticks and, and mm. also evolving with the industry, not trying to like push it in ways that it shouldn't go, um, you know, working with other people in Australia and working with other people in the industry to make it good. Um, you know, decent effort at, at making it work. And I think that's that's what we look for for anything is if you think you can just go into any new industry without someone that's respected inside the industry um, and just go, this is how we're going to make it work, this is what we're going to do, then you'll fail nine times out of ten. Yeah, and we've we've mentioned this a little bit previously, but I just want to focus on it for a second. Are there, are there some major uh, parts of the market you think that's missing in esports and even specifically in our region or globally? Oh, there's a lot missing in, in our region, um, but I think... No, I think it's just going to, I think it's just evolving still. I don't really know if it's missing or if it's just growing. Like, mm. um, I think we'll see over the next year, a lot of really big people getting involved. I mean, you saw last year, like Drake and a few of the NBA players and stuff like that happening. I think that's going to happen a lot more this year. And I think a lot of the, the traditional sports brands are going to get involved. Uh, last year was big. This year will be even bigger. Mm-hmm. But I think it's just growing. I don't think there's really anything missing other than, you know, we've spoken before about like proper player agents and stuff like that. Someone really pushing you know like 
the players making sure they get the right amount of money, making sure they're being treated correctly, like things like that. And even just a management agency where you can go, cool, these guys are going to pay you way more. You should go to them. Um, I think there might even be people already doing that. I think we spoke about that, but that sort of stuff, it's going to be like traditional sports. It's going to be, everyone's going to need an agent. Everyone's going to need a manager. So it's going to need a team around you if you're really big as well um, to help you train and stuff. I don't think it's going to be how it is currently where like the the team itself, we're going like to set up a house and you're all going to go there and play out of it. I think it's going to become a bit more like I'm the athlete. I'm going to train myself. I'm going to do this. When I am part of a team, I'm going to train with that team, whatever, but I might be swapping teams all the time, like like you do in NBA and AFL. And so I think, I think it'll evolve, but it's all just growing at the moment. Mm, yeah. And I, I find it very interesting. We'll be talking about this in, you know, with big esports, we're launching our new webinar style educational series soon. And we'll be talking about some of that, about the intersection between, Esports being sport and entertainment. Yep. So you can take little bits from sport, talking about MMA, Conor McGregor, et cetera, but you can take bits from entertainment side of things, how to broadcast, how to build a fan, how to digitally 100%. advertise, and they're really combined together. And yep. that's the interesting intersection between esports because you can easily do, you can watch, like you were saying, Tofu and Ninja, you can watch a cool play they did and you can reenact that. Yeah. And you can literally do it with without having legs because gaming is so open to everyone exactly right. and now it's purely on a mobile phone you can do or yep. ar vr as well so you know disability income and stuff doesn't doesn't uh, interact so much and then what you've yep. been provided with in the past you don't have to go to the right schools to get into the right area totally agree. so it's uh yeah selling that american dream more exactly so, the american dream more yeah. so than anything else yeah. so a lot of a lot of people in esports right now are looking to fundraise themselves yep. uh, and they're also they're you know looking to start managing staff for the first time yep. a lot of esports people are quite new to the industry so how what kind of advice would you like to give to them for people managing the day to day and try to grow with the stresses of running a startup? Yeah, look, I mean, if you hire the right people or if you work with the right people in I guess a lot of the esports guys, you won't be able to choose, but if you work with the right people, it's usually not that hard. That you're always going to get staff problems, you're always going to have one staff member that had a fight with another staff member and you got to look after that stuff. Mm. Um, but you've you've got to really my whole thing is like I love my staff, like r- literally all of them. I will do whatever I need to do for them. I do whatever I can for them. Um, and so that way, if something is wrong, they can tell us and we'll try and fix it. Um, if you're not like caring for your staff, if you don't care what happens to them, if you don't care if they're fighting with each other, it's just going to blow up massively. And in, in the beginning, it was hard because I'm not some HR guy that can know what to do with people. And if they're fighting, like, who do I, what do I do about it? And you, you learn, you, 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 you really have to learn. You have to look at fair work and see what the guidelines are. How am I meant to approach all this sort of stuff? Um, and mm. that's sort of what I what I do now. And I've tried to step away now at this point from managing sort of day-to-day staff stuff. But when it comes to my staff, I still want the best for them and I want to look after them. Um, and that's going to be the key thing to a lot of these athletes as well is if you're not looking after them, they're going to go somebody somewhere else. Um, and in terms of a startup, you, you have to pick the right people for the job and you have to treat those people correctly. Mm. Yeah. In a startup, you've got like three people you know, four or five people, you don't have a massive corporate company that you don't have to care. Like you can just make sure, you know, we're paying them well and we're the, one of the big three. So they're going to have to work for us anyway. It's like, well, it's not like that in a startup. You have to make the best atmosphere. And mm. that's why we do all the crazy stuff we do here. But, and that's why the studio looks the way it does is to retain people and hopefully they want to keep coming back. Yeah. Especially, you know, talking about what we said about business before and driving in revenue. And, you know, we, we see this a little bit in esports where people say, oh, I want to look after my staff. So I pay them better than industry salaries as a startup mm. and then the company dies because yep, exactly. you don't have money to Can't bring in that. any new business, right? Yep. So ultimately looking after your staff means being a bit hard on them at times, making sure yep. they work properly. But like you said, loving your staff, making sure you look after them, smooth over their yep. issues. Look, money's not going to be something that's easy in a startup. Even at the point where you're seven, 10 years in, you can't pay everyone $100,000. You can't pay everyone even like $60,000 sometimes. So it, it, that's the thing. A lot of people compare it to like EA or to like, you know, the big guys. It's like, Man, if we were at that point already, they've been around for like how many years now? Like it's ridiculous. So Mm. I think you need to sort of explain that to them though. It's not just about saying, no, you can't be paid that. No, we're only going to pay you this salary. You have to say why. You have to be like, listen, if if we could afford to pay you that much more, we would. But if we pay you that much more, then that means we've got to pay everyone that much more, which means that we're going to run out of money very quickly. So you can either have your job for the next 10 years Mm. or you can get paid really well this year. You know, so that's, it's it's a super fine balancing act you may have to lose some like really talented people along the way because you just can't pay them that much. Um, but you'll get to a point where you can start paying people proper wages and um, you know, they might always want more people always want more, but you've got to explain yeah. why and, and you know, the, the do's and do nots of business. Um, but I try and be as open as I can with my staff and 
yeah, you, you can just do what you can. You're a startup at the end of the day. So, mm. yeah. so in so putting your investor hat on for a second, what yep. really impresses you when a company walks through the door? What what do you kind of check boxes you're checking off in your mind as they're pitching or just having a conversation with you? I think one of the big ones is what you said before is that you can tell straight away who wants money just to pay themselves money. Um, if you're in the first year of your business, I don't want you seeing, I don't want to see you earning anything. I, I didn't pay myself like the first year and a half. So if you're paying yourself just like a base salary so that way you can live, perfect. That's what I want to see. Mm. Uh, and that should happen until the point that you're then bringing in like major revenue. Um, you know, like it's it's crazy what I see people doing now. They literally like, they're raising massive funds and then they're just paying themselves ridiculously and going and buying like ridiculous cars and houses. It's like, what the hell is going on? And they lose everything. So mm. I want to see someone who wants to grow with the business, not grow with the money that you just raised. Um, it's about the future and you should run the company as if that you're, the money that you're making is is the money that you're actually you know going to use, not just the investor money that you just got $2 million for. And you know, it's, it's I don't know, I, I see a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, I hate that more than anything. Yeah, and I guess it, it goes back to another another podcast I listened to a bit called The Pitch, which is where people come in. It's a Shark Tank style thing, yeah, but cool. a little bit less theatrical yeah. um, and a lot more like tech-focused okay, cool. products. Yeah. Yeah, and similar, you know, there was someone that came in and said, okay, you know, I'm looking to raise $2 million today, $10 million valuation. It was like a an innovative garbage style company. Yeah. And they were talking it about how they're, gonna, how they're going to pay. <laughs> literally, though, not figuratively. Yeah. And, and how they were going to pay, you know, all their staff well above minimum wage. Yeah. And then one of the you know, most astute investors in there said, well, when you're using my money, you're not going to pay, you know, a whole bunch of money because then you're going to run out. The company's not going to exist. Yeah. And it goes back to the same thing we talked about. Ultimately, yes, you can pay your staff a bit better. They might be able to move into a nicer apartment, you know, nice into the city, buy a nicer yeah. car, whatever. But you're not looking after them because in two, three years, they're not going to have a job. The right. company's gone. Exactly right. You're going to have to pay your last $100,000 exeter in redundancy yep. and then that's it. No one's got a job left. 100%, man. Like we, the wages that people were on, you know, some of the other companies that I worked at uh, were insane just for the sake of them being an American company and they could put everyone on that wage. And what happened? Even being an American company, it shut down. So mm. it's, um, you know, you just got to be careful in the beginning. Yeah. So you got to be any... careful always, really. But in the beginning, you've got to be really careful. Yeah. So keeping your mind in the esports side, are yep. there any final words that you'd, you'd like to say to someone who's looking to start up their own esports company today and might be looking to look for investment or just run a sustainable business? Come talk to you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've got nothing for them. I came talk to you and then I just decided to invest in you. But I think, you know, it's you really need to be like look at america look at like korea and look at some of the really big players and see what they're doing and then try and find like new things they're doing and try and do it here because i think that's they're so far ahead of us already um money wise but also branding wise like you were saying before the way that they broadcast this stuff is like it's like going to disneyland half the stuff that they got you look at like ninja at bloody at like times square on new year's eve mm. like no one would have thought that was going to happen so yeah a lot of these bigger publishers are putting a lot of money into the competitions the overwatch stuff that is insane how they've got all their sort of digital screens with the characters and it's crazy right so i think that we need to look at what they're doing we need to try and do it even better um you know the afl is one of the, the best sports in the world the way we do the afl is is amazing um, and it can rival the NFL and, and all these sort of big sports. So there's no reason we can't do the same in esports. Um, you know, and we've got the stadiums to do it. We've got the people to do it. Uh, everyone in this country loves sport. So I think once it starts bleeding in, I think that's when we're going to see a big shift. Yeah. But yeah, in terms of um, advice, I'd just talk to Chris because he seems to know everything. Fantastic. So for anyone looking to follow yourself or Playside's journey as you continue within the apps market, VR and AR, where can they do so? Uh, just Instagram is the best way. So at uh, Jerry Sarkis, G-E-R-R-Y-S-A-K-K-A-S or at Playside Studios on Instagram. Um, we pretty much just use Instagram for everything. So that's the best place to find us until we start streaming on Twitch with you or something. And we become gamers. To become gamers yourself. Fantastic. Yep. All right, mate. Thanks for joining us today Thanks, on the mate. podcast. And this has been the Big Esports Podcast number 18 with Jerry Sarkis, the CEO and co-founder of Playside Studios. Awesome. Bye, guys. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.